Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. We're doing our uh, close quarantine Zoom live series uh, still. It was Greg and I hanging out last week, but this week we have David Bradford joining us. David, thanks for being here, buddy. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. And we're even uh, expanding outside the walls of Texas A&M and including our UGA colleague. <laughs> so go dogs. Yes. And I, I can even say that as an Aggie because I have three degrees from there. So I feel like I have earned the uh, ability to say go dogs, even being a current Aggie. And we, we rarely play each other in, in major sports. So uh, it's okay. Yeah, it makes it easier. And on the day in which we do, I have to hide in my house. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so uh, uh, David, I brought David on, or asked David to be a part of this conversation this evening because I wanted to spend some time exploring uh, what's going on from a health economist standpoint and looking at the healthcare system. Also, some of my own background is in unemployment insurance, and there have been some things going on um, related to the stimulus package, the CARES Act, um, and some attempts by the states and by the federal government to provide a safety net and a stimulus through unemployment insurance. So I want to talk a little bit about that today um, as well. Um, we're going to continue doing these for the foreseeable future at this time at 6 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Eastern, um, and giving you the opportunity to ask uh, the guest and the host any questions that you would like. Last time, uh, Greg and I took questions the whole time, um, which was great. But I think what we're going to do this time is carve out maybe 20 or 30 minutes for David and I to talk a little bit about uh, what our understanding is kind of the current major pressing concerns, uh, both within the healthcare industry and with the uh, economy, and particularly a focus on unemployment insurance and loss of jobs. And then we'll open it up about 30 minutes in to take any questions. But as you have questions throughout, uh, between now and then, go ahead and put them in the chat box. Faith will get them uh, teed up for us. And once our 25, 30 minute introduction comes down to a close, we'll start taking those questions. Final thing I'll say before I uh, jump back to David is please keep your mics muted and your cameras turned off. Anybody kind of breaking those rules will be uh, removed from the Zoom meeting. So uh, just keep your cameras off, your, uh, your mics muted and send us any questions you have in the chat box. If you are, uh, here to be disruptive, we'll just remove you and cut that part from the recording, okay? We're excited you took time out on a Tuesday night to join us to talk about some of the public policy issues related to uh, COVID-19. David, again, thanks for being here. I wanted to, as I said, have you on to get a health economist lens um, to compliment some of the public health experts and give some general updates. So uh, as promised, I'm not going to throw a specific question at you, but maybe just from your field and your expertise, what do you see as some of the major challenges and what the general uh, audience should be concerned about as we move forward with the pandemic response from the healthcare perspective? Sure. Uh, I appreciate the chance to, to talk to your, uh, to your students and, and your constituents and, and the viewers of your show. Um, so I'll just, I won't, uh, one of the difficulties with having faculty talk to one another is that we could drone on for hours and hours if we're not careful. So I'll try my best uh, not to do that. Uh, and I, I, I highlight a couple of things, or a few things at least, that uh, people should keep in the backs of their minds as they're thinking about how to understand the crisis that we're facing right now, uh, why it seems so severe, um, and uh, what the, you know, how they might think about taking action uh, uh, to sort of help the situation. <clears throat> you know, when, when this first, when this uh, novel coronavirus first uh, surfaced in uh, China, uh, there was a lot of debate, I think, and at least on the, in the popular media and uh, on in sort of the political world about what our response should be. The noted, you know, it was, it was argued that this is a disease that uh, maybe is not, uh, is, is worse than the flu, but not a lot worse than the flu. Um, and we have people uh, who sadly die from the flu uh, with some regularity in the United States every year. And how is this going to be different? Now, we've all, of course, seen in retrospect that it has been quite different. And, and I think that one of the reasons that it has been uh, illustrates the point of, of, of what we need to think about as we move forward, um, which is the reason, one of the reasons that this 
crisis has developed the way that it did is because this particular novel coronavirus is extremely, uh, it, it transmits more fast, more quickly than the flu does. And it also seems to, to quickly for some people get into uh, their lungs and get low into the lungs and, and cause pneumonia, which then requires hospitalization, often will require uh, ICU or more intensive uh, hospitalization with um, breathing assistance with ventilators and, and things of that sort. And that's where we get to the real crux of the problem uh, that we face that perhaps hope, hope economists uh, such as myself may be able to provide as we move forward some, some, uh, some help. And that is that whether or not we have a six-tenths or an eight-tenths of a percent mortality rate from this disease or eight or nine percent mortality rate, that difference is largely driven by whether or not the infrastructure of the acute, primarily acute hospital infrastructure is uh, adequate to the task at hand. So in the United States, we've got about 740,000 hospital beds uh, available, or actually 740,000 hospital beds that are staffed. Um, but on any given point in time, about 65% of those beds are actually occupied. And it sort of, if we were to roll back the clock six months, you know, only about 35% of the hospital beds that uh, we have in the United States would be free at any one point in time. Mm -hmm. we, we have about 130,000, uh, I'm sorry, 160,000 uh, ventilators available at any given point in time in the United States. Um, and so the, the difficulty with this particular crisis is it's spreading so rapidly, people are progressing so quickly towards needing assistance that our ability to treat the people who need it uh, is outstripped, sometimes by factors of two or three. Right? So, so yeah. what I maybe hear you saying is, we only have so much uh, either stockpiled or so much capacity we were talking about infrastructure, number of beds, number of ventilators, and that part of the problem with this particular coronavirus is how quickly it spreads. So that even if the mortality rate might, with good, with good, with access to good quality modern healthcare, might be one percent or less, if people don't have access to um, to those those healthcare uh, supplies and healthcare, that that number could be much larger. And so part of the concern is slowing down the spread because the spread has been so fast and we don't want to overwhelm the, the infrastructure or the, the capacity to provide healthcare that we have in the U.S. That's exactly right. I mean, people, people I think, believe or imagine that we've got uh, an unlimited access to resources. That's just not true. As I said, you know, there's about 160,000 uh, ventilators in the United States prior to this uh, epidemic crisis. And uh, prior to this crisis, we had about 13,000 in strategic reserves. Now, 13,000 in strategic reserves in most circumstances is well, is, is, a, is a nice cushion. But, you know, we're, we were facing a, a situation where we thought we might need 80,000 additional uh, ventilators. Now, good news is that uh, and I should say also, as far as infrastructure goes, that is really the key. Do you, does your demand far outstrip your capacity to provide services? Italy has had a situation where the need for care far outstripped their ability to provide it. But Italy started at a base with more hospital beds and more ventilators per capita than the United States has, right? Um, Germany has had a, uh, an experience so far where they've been able to maintain um, their system without having it be stressed too terribly. They started out at about the same rate as Italy as far as per capita resources available to them. What's the difference? The difference is how quickly the virus spread in the two locales. Italy went first, um, unfortunately for them. It spread quickly before I think um, the public health officials in that country were able to get people to pay strict attention. And as a consequence, by the time they started implementing really serious social distancing and, and stay-at-home orders, and they've got much more extreme orders than we have in the United States, it was already out of control for them, and their system was overwhelmed. Germany had the, had the example of Italy to see, and Germany responded by very aggressive testing, very aggressive contact tracing, where they could isolate the people who came into contact with somebody with this, this novel coronavirus and, 
and therefore take the sparks that were landing, sparks landed all over Italy and spread, sparks landed all over the United States and spread, what Germany was able to do is, is to actually identify uh, people who were exposed and isolate them and the sparks didn't spread as quickly. Ultimately, it may well be that we have, you know, the midline forecasts are 40% of, of, of world population and, and pretty much across the board will, will be exposed to and will develop this disease to one degree or another. But it, it makes a huge difference as to whether or not that's spread over 18 months before a, vir uh, a vaccine comes online or if it's compressed in the first two or three months. Italy, sadly, had it in the first two or three months. Germany looks like they're on, on track at this point to spread it out over a much longer time frame. The United States has been somewhat closer to the Italian experience, but I will say that you know we've got better data now. And in fact, one of the primary, um, the primary epidemiological models that have been forecasting the, um, the expected uh, caseload and, uh, and death, death trends is uh, the IHME model from the University of Washington. Now that we've got a number of countries that have gotten to the peak and have gotten past it and we're able to model the impact of these stay-at-home restrictions we've put in place, and we're looking at what the United States is doing, at least what many, the majority of states are doing, um, it, you know, they're able now actually just today to, to um, to uh, revise the model estimates down substantially, where last week the estimates were between 100,000 and 200,000 deaths in the United States uh, over the next uh, five to six weeks. They're now estimating that uh, we're on track for substantially less, something in the neighborhood of 50 to 130,000 deaths. And we might see in some areas peaks. We expect peak in New York uh, to be next week, but we might see sort of some nationwide median peaks uh, within the next three or four weeks, which is a much shorter time than we thought. It's crucial though for those trajectories to, to be realized is that people maintain this extreme social distancing that we're trying to practice right now, that we stay at home, that we don't try to jumpstart the economy too quickly. We don't do things like, I don't know, have primary elections um, in the peak of the growth of, um, uh, or in-person voting for primary elections in the peak of the growth of the virus. So if we continue on doing what we're doing, the, the one of the widely used models now is looking more optimistic. And I think that's great news for everybody. So it sounds like, you know, the basic takeaway is one, when you respond. Um, so responding earlier and, and by responding, we're talking about things like social distancing and isolating and testing as kind of uh, the set of things in general that we've been talking about. And that if you don't do those things, you don't have the adequate testing. And if you don't practice the social distancing stuff, the longer you kind of wait to do that, the more likely you're going to have more deaths. And that the reason we've seen the drop from the models that the White House has been pointing to, where they've dropped by 50,000, is in direct kind of response to the fact that people are social distancing and that people are isolating and that they are staying home. And those downward revisions um, could easily go back up if we don't uh, kind of keep isolated and keep practicing social distancing for the, um, for the foreseeable future. And that model is how, how kind of long does that particular model suggest that we need to be kind of doing the complete social distancing to achieve those better numbers? Um, probably through the end of May. Now, and, and I will say that what our, yes, yeah, so what we've done right now is we have done two of the three or four things we need to do to really put, um, to put this crisis into a manageable level uh, to buy our, uh, our uh, pharmaceutical companies and our university research labs the time to, to develop and test and roll out a new vaccine. That's going to be 15 to 18 months away. Nothing we can do about that, right? Um, so in order to, to slow us down to the pace that we can manage and give everybody the best chance of, of survival and, you know, a good chance of survival if they contract the disease, even if it progresses badly for them, is, again, keep our demand below the requirements for our health infrastructure. So we've done social distancing. We've done isolation, self-isolation. In, in most cases, not every state, every state needs to do that. It will go everywhere. Any state that doesn't do that will have uh, a New York experience, right? But then we need to do testing. Very, very important that we do testing of individuals, 
who are who have the disease and then contact tracing of the people that they come into contact with so that they can be isolated through the 14-day incubation period for the for the virus and if we can do that we can keep control of the reemergence of the virus of virus when um, we do finally sort of open the tap carefully the fourth thing that we need to do is of course do another form of testing which is to test people for the antibodies to the disease we don't know yet whether or not uh, having the disease and having antibodies uh, in your blood will convey immunity but my understanding from the my clinical colleagues is that there's no reason to believe that that wouldn't be the case. It's the case in nearly every other virus that we know. Um, that's why we get vaccines for viruses because you can get a vaccine and have lifetime immunity or near lifetime immunity for chicken, for smallpox and things of that sort. Right? So unless this is an extremely weird virus and there's no evidence that it is, um, people who have the antibodies will be immune, which means they can't catch it. And most importantly, they can't, they can't, uh, pass the disease on to anybody else. So what, if we can identify those people, those people are good to go back out into the economy and have a particular role to play at taking care of others and at sort of, sort of going through the next phase of this really unprecedented experience we're running right now, experiment we're running right now, which is to turn an economy off um, and hope that when you press the start button a month later, it kicks, it kicks back up. We don't know, we've never tried this before. So. Um, yeah. So I, I want to get to uh, talking about putting the pause on the economy. But one of the things that before we do that, to put that in context, uh, my understanding of, of what epidemiologists and public health experts are saying, and, and my understanding of what you've just described is that social distancing and isolating cut the cases down so that we can stay under capacity. Yeah. But some real percentage of the population over until we can get a vaccine or until a such a large percentage of people will have it that that's what who's going to get it um well can the the virus will stay around it'll continue to infect people as we as we kind of uh loosen up some of the social distance stuff we've maybe seen some in japan and some in china there's a chance that it starts to come back so we're going to be playing this kind of game until there's a uh, a vaccine that we want to lessen some uh lessen some social distancing try to figure out who has the antibodies, uh, ease back into some uh, being more in public spaces. But that is, until we have a vaccine, that's going to, and until we can clearly identify who has it and who doesn't and who has antibodies, that's always going to carry the risk of, 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 of significant growth again until we have a vaccine. Is that kind of yeah, your understanding? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and so we're, um, you know, what we, what we really want to try to avoid uh, is a, sort of a boom and bust cycle. For, I mean, um, both from a public health and an economic standpoint. We, we've gone through, we're going to go through two solid months of essentially turning the economy off, or at least turning 60 to 70% of the economy off. Um, we don't want to have to do that every other month, right, or every two months. We don't want to go back uh, in uh, first of June and say, great, things are wonderful, and then August 1st or September 1st say, oh, sorry, it's now back where we like back to where we are today so now another two months of lockdown that would be very very disruptive for the economy so we need to find these mechanisms like contact tracing and and intensive testing um where where everybody really gets tested we don't just say people are tested but everybody really gets tested um those need to be in place so that we can have people <clears throat> excuse me um who uh we can we can we can know people who are uh, infected and are at risk to to, for, to others and themselves at risk so that we can control them. This is actually, you know, this is something you and I were talking about before uh, before we sort of opened up the um, opened up the um, the show here. Is that at a lot a lot of government services are going to be under stress and. Um, and in particular, universities where you and I work are going to have to face are going to face some significant uh, difficulties as um, as the, the tax revenues dry up, as tuition revenues become more problematic. Um, but also, this could impact uh, other revenue sources. And you know, it's not yet I think clear that the football season is going to be able to be maintained. And so Texas A and M. Uh, where you are gets 95 to 100 million dollars a year uh, 
of revenue just to the university from football, you know, 20 or $30 million of that goes into the university's general fund. Um, that's a lot of money to have to replace and the local economy is going to be impacted. And these are the kind of spillover things that we really have to have to try to pay attention to uh, as we move forward and think about restarting the economy in ways that, that doesn't mean that 94,000 people in Athens or a hundred, what are you guys at? 105,000 people or something crazy yeah. like that. And, and, um, College Station don't catch uh, COVID-19 some Saturday. Yeah, it's hard to kind of imagine when we might be able to put uh, 100,000 people or 90-something thousand like in Athens in a crowd for a, for a football game um, and when that might be a reasonable thing to do. And that's that's going to have these kind of, to your point, continued impacts on, on the economy like we've already seen play out, for example, you know, um, in – in the retail industry and in the service industry, these were industries that as we kind of stopped the economy, felt the immediate impact, but now other, other uh, industries are also going to start seeing the impact of this. And just at the, you know, one of the things we mentioned last time, I believe was that the, the previous week there had been 3.3 million initial unemployment insurance claims um, last time we had chatted. Which was an order of magnitude, an order of magnitude bigger than the previous record, right? Yeah, which was said in the early 80s, which was like, I think, 700 and something thousand, maybe a little lower. And then the following week, we just doubled it. It was around 6.6 yeah. million. Right. And the numbers will, will come out this Thursday for the previous week, but there's no kind of indication that, that those numbers will stop or that they'll slow down. No. Um, it's not clear that they'll continue to exponentially grow. Um, but, you know, some of the stuff that, uh, you know, that I've been reading suggests we're already between 10 and 15 percent unemployment and that this is just from the first initial of people losing their jobs, but that another piece of this is going to also be uh, new hiring is going to dry up, which helps also um, drive keeping unemployment down. Yeah. And so, you know, to your point, stopping and starting the economy is going to be a bit of a, of a, of a tough game that we don't really want to play. And this is, you know, this, this has caused a lot of people to question, like, is what should be the actual response? Um, is it actually the best thing to do to keep everything shut down so that people, uh, people can, um, the people can stay, uh, stay in, even though that requires shutting down the economy? And this, this point that you pictured is, is the reason why, right? We don't want to overwhelm the hospital capacity. So hopefully part of this is building up hospital capacity um, as well, which there seems to be some, some movement towards increasing testing, for example, uh, turning to the private sector to build more ventilators, to make more hospital beds so that we don't get to that, uh, you know, jumping over capacity point. Yeah, but, but a couple, couple things to say, to say about that when you're exactly right. Uh, second, um, you know, these things all have to happen. We have to build more ventilators. We have to have more hospital capacity, but these things can't happen uh, overnight. We simply cannot build and deliver reliable and safe ventilators in a matter of a few days. It even, you know, we, we hear a lot about, oh, the United States in World War II was pumping out a, a you know, battleship a week, and that's true. But it took us two years to, to ramp up the economy to be able to do that kind of thing. We certainly can do it, but it's going to take time. And so we've got to buy time. And this is, this is part of what we're about. Uh, what we need to make sure people understand is that what we're doing now is not to solve the problem. What we're doing now is trying to buy time in order to allow our systems to ramp up so that we can solve the problem. The problem won't get solved until there's a vaccine in, in 16 months. Um, we've got to buy ourselves time. And we got to do that by making sure that people can buy food, um, uh, with unemployment insurance. Another thing that, that uh, you know, we need to think about is that we have to be careful that people don't lose their homes. I mean, a few uh, weeks ago, April 1st hit, rent checks were due. Um, actually, it turns out my, uh, just coincidentally, uh, one of my frequent co-authors, um, who's also my daughter, Ashley Bradford, and I had a paper that was just published uh, about three weeks ago in Health Services Research that looked at the impact of evictions on opioid mortality. And what we find is that when evictions go up, there's really substantial increases in deaths of despair. We actually looked at opioid mortality, benzodiazepine, and, and alcohol-related, uh, alcohol poisonings. These go up substantially when there's evictions. 
We haven't looked at foreclosures. Um, and so th there's a whole host of housing crises that we have to make sure that we avoid um, when people aren't able to pay the rent. Now, the news media has talked about how, oh, this is, you know, the, the federal government has stepped in and said no evictions and no foreclosures. But what the federal government did was they stepped in and said, which is good, um, that there's no evictions in HUD-run public housing. And there's no foreclosures of uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, Mac backed uh, mortgages. But there's only a small fraction of people in this country who are at risk of eviction, who are living in HUD-provided public housing, and a substantial fraction, but nonetheless, a very you know a small minority of mortgages are backed by the federal government. So a lot of people are still at risk for losing their house. For example, all of these things have to be managed um, in a way that I'm I'm sorry to say is going to require spending um, many trillions of dollars, not just the two that we've spent so far. Yeah, I think that's probably right, and. You know, where the federal government's essentially going to have to be supporting workers at a very large dollar amount while things are shut down. And the CARES, you know, CARES Act has taken, taken some steps in that direction. To your point, a couple trillion dollars, it's expanded unemployment insurance, deferred some student loans, made some uh, interest free loans available to employers. So there are some kind of steps, initial steps in that direction to kind of stabilize the piece of it. But to your point, uh, and to a lot of people's concern is that's really expensive and it's going to be really expensive for as long as we have to do it to it's expensive it's expensive compared to what right i mean the statement always has to be compared to some alternative it is expensive compared to a world where we didn't have the uh you know sars cove uh, 2 or whatever it's called but it's not so expensive compared to the world where we just let it run rampant and people have to go back into the economy to be able to eat and as a consequence we get 80 percent of the population with this disease in five months that's really expensive so yeah i mean we don't like the idea that we're spending maybe four trillion dollars um to combat this in the immediate uh term but if we don't we're going to spend i promise you 100% guaranteed we're going to spend multiples of that picking up the pieces from what happens afterwards. Well, Faith, I think you, um, you managed to clear out some of the Zoom bombing. Well done. Um, first time you've had to uh, remove some folks, but uh, we're uh, experimenting with this live. So thanks for doing that. But I also saw some questions pop up. And we're at the 30-minute mark. So what do you got? Okay, so one of the questions is in regards to the LBA, and it is, do the presenters have any predictions for what will happen after this initial period for programs like Medicare and Social Security? Yeah, so, so the question was, what after we've sort of gotten over this acute phase of the virus and managing the economy, what happens to Medicare and Social Security? Um, I don't think that there need be any particular uh, impact on Medicare and Social Security as long as we keep things in perspective. You know, $4 trillion is undoubtedly a lot of money, right? Um, but, and the U.S. economy puts off about, what, $20 trillion or so uh, in any given year. And <clears throat> so we can, we can absorb this kind of a, this kind of a spend without much, uh, much trouble. One good thing is that we're issuing this, these, we're taking on this obligation in our sovereign currency, the dollar, which means that, you know, if we miss our monetary policy a little bit and there's a bit of inflation, we'll actually pay back less. And so um, countries that are issued debt in their sovereign currency, so like the U.S., we issue debt in dollars, unlike, say, Italy that has to issue debt in euros that they don't control, um, countries like us, we, we need to be concerned about the debt. And we need to not, uh, we need to have it in reserve that is we need to draw it down in good times so that we can build it up in bad times um but it's not i don't think economists today uh believe that it's quite the crisis that it's often made out to be and certainly this is a, not a time to ask ourselves should we spend a trillion dollars the answer is yes uh we'll be better off by doing it and at the end of the day what that means is that the if we can keep the economy solid then the uh, payroll taxes 
that support Medicare and that support Social Security. Those are not actually, Medicare is not an insurance program. 75% of the money comes from payroll taxes, not by premiums that people pay. Social Security is not an insurance program. You don't get the money out that you put in. You put in money to pay for people who are retired when you're working and people who are working put in money to pay for you when you're retired. And so as long as we can keep the economy at a reasonable level, those payroll taxes will be adequate to the task. That's good. I think it is going to uh, ask some general healthcare insurance questions that have been something we've been wrestling for, uh, wrestling with um, at the political debate for some time now, which is, is it good that general healthcare is covered by an employer, that to get Medicare kind of as a public option, you have to be in your mid-60s, is that, does that make as much sense? Does that fit in with a pandemic when some people may be losing their jobs? What should the additional pieces be uh, guaranteed for some type of health care for them? So I do think it might, um, it might ask new questions about the importance or the, the way in which health insurance is provided, as well as uh, direct payments. So we're, we're going to see kind of, you know, as part of the unemployment insurance um, expansion of the CARES Act, the U.S. federal government is giving $600 a week to uh, people that the unemployment insurance claims are um, are granted on top of what the states would give otherwise. And states have different minimums and maximums based on the state formula. Mm -hmm. And so we're already kind of <clears throat> an experiment of expanding the generosity of unemployment insurance because, you know, we don't think that there's what we would call, you know, a, a moral hazard problem if people can't find work, but they need to be stabilized. Usually, we give them a little bit less than what they made before, or sometimes um, a lot less as an incentive to look for work. And yeah. uh, the federal government has already kind of giving larger direct payments because that, that side of the theory in this case isn't really applicable. Yeah, I think this guy, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what we learn about people's, um, you know, uh, the incentives or disincentives from these sorts of payments for people's incentive to go back to work. I, I, I predict you're not going to see, you're going to see people rushing back to work as quickly as they possibly can on the health insurance front. Let me, let me actually, I do want to, uh, that is one area where I, I feel some degree of expertise. Um, and so I, um, I do want to say that, that I suspect what will happen is that this does stimulate discussion, right? That we're going to get policymakers and people in the political process having conversations about, uh, about how we structure health care. However, I would also like to point out that I don't actually think that this pandemic shows us anything about the efficiency of the financing system that we have. Absent maybe we need a more robust uh, uh, sort of catastrophic event pool to draw on when these things happen. But if we look at us with a very market-oriented system, you look at Great Britain with an extremely centralized National Health Service that where the government actually employs uh, most providers and, and directly provides most, though not all, but most healthcare to Italy, which is kind of a combination of us where there's a good robust private sector, but a robust public sector. And those different financing systems hasn't made a difference in terms of whether this, this uh, crisis hit hard. The, the issue is that the system was overwhelmed, not that payment was somehow at risk. So I actually don't actually think that we're learning an awful lot that will inform Medicare for all versus enhanced uh, ACA with a public option versus business as usual under the ACA with maybe strengthening subsidies for private insurance. Those are live options. Uh, there's pros and cons of all of them. Uh, I think those are healthy debates that we need to have for sure because they're different from one another. And people, we, we should, as a society, have the version we, we, we collectively think is best. But I don't think we're learning an awful lot about that question right now. That's a good point. Faith? All right. So this one is going directly to Dr. Bradford. What do you think of Governor Newsom's plan to build a consortium of states to buy PPE in bulk? And do you think that this is a smart response? <clears throat> um, in the face of the federal government's failing to do it, yes, it's a smart response. Um, I will say this is one of the areas where I think the the fact that the current administration being full of, being mostly populated by newcomers to government and to some degree amateurs at government, 
is coming to bear. You know, you've, we've heard the president say uh, several times, um, you know, oh, the federal government's not a shipping clerk. Um, and, you know, he says that in some degree, that's just, he has a stylistic approach that does that, but he's not saying it in isolation. It's not like this is just his idea and um, he's just throwing it out there. He does that um, for a lot of things. I suspect mostly he's doing it when he thinks it's not that important. He's probably making a point that they actually have discussed um, and believe that the federal government is a shipping clerk, but in, indeed, that's exactly what the federal government is in times like this. It should be. The, the whole point of, um, of a strategic reserve is so that it's distributed to actual people. You know, Jared Kushner's claims that, oh, the federal reserve is for the federal government. Well, I don't actually don't know what that even means. Is it, like, is it only for the 400, the 100,000 or so, 200,000 or so people that work for the federal government? That doesn't make any sense. Of course, the strategic reserves are for the people of the United States. Um, and so, um, so in, the, in the face of the, uh, the current administration choosing not to exercise that role, that role, which is to use its ability to coerce manufacturers in extreme circumstances, but at least use its ability to negotiate aggressively with prices and to buy in bulk and then distribute using non-market mechanisms based strictly on epidemiological studies in need, the government, federal government should be doing that government isn't doing that. And so the question then is, does every state do it? In which case, I don't, I mean, you guys in Texas might be okay with that. You got a lot of money, you'll win. Um, New York will win, California will win, Florida will win, everybody else will lose, right? Mississippi does not want to compete with Texas for incubators. It's not, frankly, equitable to Mississippi, who doesn't, doesn't not going to have the ability to price uh, like you guys. So um, I think let's avoid some of them. Let's coordinate. Let's have bulk purchases and let's allocate uh, on an as-needed basis. That's in the face of the government, the federal government failing to do its job. That's an appropriate policy response. Ideally, of course, um, it wouldn't be required. The, the government would use its strategic reserve as it was intended to do. But in the absence of that, I mean, one strength of a federal system is that if the government, the federal, if the national government doesn't step up, state governments are free mostly to, to innovate and to the extent that they're not free. I mean, to the extent that Newsom in California leads a coalition of states to do something that technically is not, that a court, federal court might say, no, you can't do that. The federal court's going to say that months from now after a long legal process and the states will simply ignore them. I mean, and, and and I think what Donald Trump doesn't realize is that what he's doing right now is really jeopardizing his own authority, which is once states decide, like states, particularly like California, decide that it just doesn't make sense to follow what the federal government says, they can do their own thing. And really, there's not anything that the federal government can do about it. Donald Trump will not send the army into California to force it to hand over the ventilators that it bought in the collective action. So um, I think he's playing a dangerous game there. And the strength of our system is probably more in jeopardy, not because of violence or conflict, but just finally some powerful state saying, I'm going to do what I think is right and ignoring uh, the federal government when it says to do something differently. And once a state does that, the cat sort of, you know, the cat's out of the bag and it's not clear how you put it back. Because then California just does what it wants and who's going to stop it? You, you guys in Texas aren't going to stop them. <laughs> no, yeah. We no, got, I, think that, I promise you, the Georgians aren't going to stop them. <laughs> Texans are just as likely to uh, secede on their own. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, but there again, right. yeah. But, but secession is not what's going to happen. It's not, we tried that exercise. It didn't work, right? But um, and you're not going to see things fall apart like that. You're going to see things fall apart by California ignoring a court order because it's just a stupid order, and they're not going to do it. Um, at that point, I don't know what you do. You can't make California do what they don't want to do, ultimately. Yeah, it seems like one of the uh, roles uh, that the federal government should be in a national crisis is to coordinate a national response. Yep. Um, and you would have hoped, actually, we were just talking about this in my decision-making class, that given that it's a global pandemic, there would have also been some type of global response. Yeah. But in historically, uh, particularly after World War II, that has been what the U.S. did. We kind of led the global response, pull, help pull actors together, help coordinate uh, imperfectly and, and still with some issues, but 
we kind of were taking the lead on getting actors together. And that is uh, not only is the current administration not kind of coordinating and providing a plan for the states, they've been kind of trumpeting the America first to go at it alone. We're going to do this ourselves kind of approach and disengaging from those international opportunities to help coordinate a global response where, you know, even you're know, talking about differences between rich states and poor states. If the, if the U S could have helped, you know, navigate its own response better then those resources would have been available more sooner to help share or to coordinate with countries who are even, uh, you know, poorer than Mississippi. Yeah. You know, this is, it's actually sort of mystifies me as to why, why, um, why the administration is taking this tack, honestly. I mean, because I can, I 100% understand the president's position to say, I'm not going to tell people in Wyoming that they have to stay at home. The governor of Wyoming has to do that. And you know what? In my opinion, Donald Trump is exactly right on that point. The, the president can recommend, he can, he can amplify the voice of the CDC and the NIH, but it, that is actually incredibly hard to do for the federal government to enforce stay-at-home policies in Wyoming. That's hard. But you know what's not hard? Buying a bunch of masks and distribute them. I, so I'm, I'm really actually kind of surprised that they haven't jumped on the low-hanging fruit, which is actually to be the shipping clerk, because they could do that effectively, and it would look good. It would, it would be a big value added for the response. It would be a public service, and it's something they can do uh, in the face of a lot of things that would be much harder to do. So, yeah, it's a mystery. I think it's because you have people who are simply don't have experience in government, uh, and if they did, they would know yeah, um, I actually can deliver 100 million masks. Let me do that uh, because um, that's what I can do. I actually can't tell people in Cheyenne, don't come out of your house. So, yeah. yeah this has been a kind of a theme as part of the series thinking about the U.S. response, which is, you know, if there were more qualified experts with lots of experience in these positions and they had also the president's ear that those might be um, decisions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is kind of playing out too. Uh, it turns out, you know, from the political angle that the, the president's response then has impacts both at the state level for how Democrats and Republican leadership responds. Mm -hmm. And it kind of set the, set the tone for uh, in Georgia and in Texas as two early places that, that the states did not want to take significant action and we're sort of just mirroring kind of abdicating the some type of responsibility to take a stand on this down to localities yeah um which doesn't seem particularly effective either yeah no i agree i mean it may be that both texas and georgia get lucky and i think i think so some indications we will get lucky we've gotten lucky at the expense of the people in in um in new york and new jersey and louisiana um but uh we may get lucky in that that things got so bad so quickly because those are the those are the places where in New York it's a, a hub of international travel and and it was going to land there first and of course New Jersey as a consequence and New Orleans sadly had or Louisiana sadly went forward with Mardi Gras so I mean those places showed even our respective governors who were largely intransigent that they needed to move and so we might get lucky but luck and hope are not strategies and so we should need to we again right now all of this is about getting through this next month and then buying time so that we can be smarter in october because october november we're gonna have to wrestle with this again and if we're smart we'll be we'll be okay and if we just close our eyes and say well Let's just do what we did before. We're going to be right back here again. Yeah. Uh, Faith, does, uh, do we have any other questions uh, waiting in the queue there? Uh, no, sir. We do not. All right. Um, well, um, David, is there anything we haven't touched on that you think would be useful for, um, for listeners? I think we've kind of hit at some of the important pieces of the mitigation and that sticking, you know, kind of that these models, these improvements in these models in the terms of predictions of deaths are a direct consequence of isolating and social distance. And that they kind of hinge, at least over the next kind of six weeks, 
of us uh, continuing to implement those. And, uh, you know, you see out in the social media world and out in the general news that people are really having a hard time uh, continuing to stick with this. And it's having all these other consequences too, things like domestic violence, things like violence towards children. Um, so these are some real serious uh, costs that I think are going to play out as a consequence. And I just wonder about the political willpower to stick with these. I mean, we, in just three weeks in, the political willpower seems to be waning in some places already to do it for another six months after it seems like we're flattening the curve, uh, six weeks after we have some evidence of flattening the curve. It seems like that's just going to be really hard to sustain, sustain politically. Do you know what some of the, the worser cases are if we're not able to maintain this social distancing and, and governors kind of relax too soon and people uh, are saying, hey, look, it was overblown all the whole time because look, not as many people died as, as everyone was saying. Uh, what, what are some of the worser case scenarios if we're not able to politically stick with this and economically this, uh, this isolation approach? Uh, well, I mean, the, the worst case scenario would be that people just think, well, this was no big deal. Um, they go out when the, uh, too early. They ignore subsequent calls to, to re-isolate. And we're back on the um, back on the no mitigation track that we were on in February and early March. And if we st if we stayed on that track much longer than we did, we 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 re reacted, and we had we had good public health leaders who were persuasive, the people listened to, and so we reacted. If we if people decided well they overblew it, which they didn't, uh, and so we're going to ignore them, then we'll be on a no mitigation track. And we'll be back towards a situation where we lose a million people. Um, so, and the economy tanks anyway, right? So we lose a million people, I promise you, the economy tanks, right? So, um, yeah, so what I hope happens is that uh, people, uh, and I, I have confidence, honestly, that, that this will be the case. And particularly if, if our leaders can just find the courage to be honest, if they'll just be honest with people, people will by and large, do the right thing. I have great faith that, that these are the kinds of times with honest, open leadership that people respond. They step up and say, okay, this is going to be painful. But everybody's sacrificing. And if we think that everybody's sacrificing and that it's the good reason to do so, you know, the vast, vast majority of people will, will do the right thing. Um, then we get through this acute phase. And then, of course, what we need to do is convince our leaders that once we're once we're through May and we start going back out, we absolutely must have the political will to take care of all the damage that we're causing right now. And it's real damage. You're exactly right to say, look, people losing their jobs is a serious, serious problem. We cannot make light of that. We cannot say, oh, well, too bad. You have to stay at home anyway. That callous attitude will get nobody anywhere. We have to take care of these people. But we then have to have testing, we have to have contact tracing. We have to have antibody evaluation of essentially every person in this country repeatedly. Now, for that, we have to have political will. And yes, this is the message that I want to make sure that in the last couple of minutes I have that I leave with your listeners, which is you need to put pressure on your elected representatives to make sure that they understand the absolutely essential requirement that we have testing of every person in this country, that we have contact tracing of every live case of, of COVID-19, uh, that we have antibody evaluations of the people who are going to have resistance to this, and that everybody gets tested repeatedly until we have a vaccine in place. How do they do that? You call your representatives, you call your senators, you call your state representatives. You don't get on the phone and try to have a long conversation with their staff. You don't sit there and like I'm doing right now, rattle on and on about some particular statistics. Have in your head a 15 to 20 second thing that you want your representative to support. You say what your name is, you say what your zip code is, you say I'm a constituent, and you say I want Senator X, Representative Y to support this. And then say thank you, be polite, get off the phone. It's not the staffer's fault that you agree or disagree with their boss. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there's no reason to be nasty about anything. 
there's no reason to be long-winded about it. You need to get on, get off, but I promise you, those call sheets that those staffers share with the elected representatives every day make a huge difference. Have, have very focused messages about maintaining testing so that we actually can have the economy functioning. Uh, I think that's the most important thing that your listeners can themselves do with every one of their elected representatives. And, you know, every few, don't do it every day, please. Every few weeks, make the call again. Yeah, um, I hope that um, that's something we're able to execute on. I do, uh, primaries will be kind of winding down. Election season will be winding even more up. And it does seem like a, and kind of a natural cycle of quality of dialogue that um, the ability to share rational quality information as an election gets, uh, gets closer, I do, um, I do have a lot of concerns about, but I, I, yeah, but again, I, just, just quick, right? Just call, call, and you know, you don't have to call the, the Washington, if you're calling your, your federal representatives, you don't have to call the Washington office. The call sheets get transmitted, whether they go to the DC office or they go to the local. Every representative and senator going to have many local offices. Call them, give them 15 seconds of what you want them to do. Tell them your name and zip code that you're a constituent. I promise you that matters. Great. Um, well, I think we'll cap it there. I think we're at the, um, our mark or just shy of the hour mark um this went really well um david i i really appreciate you taking the time you do a nice job explaining uh kind of what's going on explaining the you know concerns with uh maxing out capacity also the importance of kind of continuing the isolation and uh continuing the social distancing building up testing so that, that we can know who can go back out and, and uh testing for antibodies, testing for whether people have the virus so that we can get back to some sense of normalcy and buy time to get a vaccine, which will be the real big thing that will help kind of uh, kind of uh, nip this in the bud, as we said in Georgia growing up, um, and give us a chance at returning back to football games in the, in the yeah. reasonable uh, time period. And that's important. So uh, yes, I agree. Let's, let's get on that. Let's, uh, let's keep moving forward optimistically, uh, but, you know, determined to make sure that our, our leaders uh, listen to the voice of science in this case. All right. Thanks, David. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks to the audience for the questions um, and hanging out with us and listening to what we had to say tonight. This will be uh, published on the Bush School Uncorked podcast. You can find that on SoundCloud. You can find that on iTunes, on Spotify, on the Bush School website. And this episode you can find on our YouTube channel. We'll actually be able to take a look at you and I, David, as oh, no. we were talking rather than audio. And uh, the good no, news is... Uh, you didn't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't warn you. And my appearance probably didn't suggest such. Um, so, but they uh, will be on YouTube as well. And um, thanks for your time. Um, and uh, stay safe out there. Uh, listen to the experts. Take care. And uh, we hope to see you at the next recording um, a week from now. Right, thanks. thanks, everyone.